Take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 19. John chapter 19 as we come to a fairly lengthy passage this morning. I don't, uh, I usually take smaller chunks of scripture, but I wanted us to look at this in its totality. I'm not saying we'll be through with this today, but I want us to see this whole thing and really focus on the end of it today as we prepare to come to the Lord's table in the Lord's Supper. I, I had them put these words from that song that we just sang a few minutes ago, uh, Great I Am, upon the screen, because as I was, as I was singing that and thinking about the, the text today and the message today and, and just that whole song, I, I'll be honest with you, I can't sing that song without getting cold chills on my back. It, it's an amazing song talking about the great I am, worshiping the one who is worthy of our worship. And, and when it says there's no power in hell or any who can stand before the power and the presence of the great I am, I think about this passage in, in John 19 that we're going to look at this morning. I want you to follow along. As I say, I'm going to read 30 verses, uh, which is very long for me to read, but I think it's important that we hear all of this as one unit, because it's Christ going to the cross in that sacrifice in our place. Verse 1, Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him, all of this to mock him. And they began to come to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and to give him slaps on the face. Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I'm bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus then came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. We had that picture up two weeks ago, that, that famous painting uh, that showed Pilate pointing to Jesus before the crowds, Behold the man. So when the chief priest and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, Crucify! Crucify! And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law. And by that law he ought to die because he made himself out to be the Son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. And he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. See, it's... The, the Jews know how to play the political card as well as the religious card, okay? So they know that Pilate's great concern is not religion. 
Pilate's great concern is staying in favor with Caesar, in favor of the Roman government. So they say, hey, if you release him, he professes to be a king, you're no friend of Caesar's, which is the very thing Pilate was afraid of. Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat him down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. Very dangerous statement. Very dangerous Here are the Jewish leaders who profess that God is king, that Yahweh is king, and now they're saying, we don't have any king but Caesar. We'll bow before no no one but Caesar. Just trying to play to the political situation of that day. So he he handed him over to them to be crucified. And they took Jesus, therefore, and he went out bearing his own cross to a place called the Place of the Skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha. And there they crucified him, and with him two other men, one on either side, and Jesus in between. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, King of the Jews. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, that is the city of Jerusalem, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priest and the Jews were saying to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part for every soldier there, and and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them, and my clothing for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleophas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and disciple, whom he loved, standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. And after this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, he said, I am thirsty. And a jar of sour wine was taken there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head. And he gave up his spirit. That's a very familiar story. If you've been in church very much at all in your life, you've heard that story over and over and over. 
from either Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. You've heard the story of Jesus' trials, his going before Pilate, Pilate declaring he saw no guilt in this man, no reason at all for this man to go to the cross. There was absolutely no purpose in it. There was absolutely no crime committed. There was absolutely no sin involved. There was no treason. There was no declaring of anything that was out of the ordinary. There was no reason at all. And so Pilate declares, I I find no guilt in this man. I find no fault in this man. I find no reason for him to be going through what he's going through right now. I find him to be an innocent man in care. The religious leaders didn't care that there was that declaration of, of innocence by the authorities that were to be in that land by the, the civil authorities. They, they had one thing and one thing only in mind. They wanted to destroy him because they saw him as a danger to their tradition. They saw him as a danger to, to their rituals. They saw him as one who was calling people to himself and saying, I am from God. I am the very incarnation of God. I am the Son of God. I have come to show you the truth to tell you the truth, to proclaim the truth, so that you might know the truth, and the truth might set you free. And they said, we're free, man. We've never been slaves to anybody while they're under the yoke of Rome. What a foolish statement they made. Refusing to even see the freedom that is offered, the freedom that came in Jesus Christ. Pilate went back in, and knowing that he was not guilty of anything, said to said to Jesus, look, don't you, why don't you talk to me? Where are you from? Uh, they say you're a Nazarene. You're from Nazareth. Are you from Nazareth or were you from, you, you, are you from before then? In other words, are you from heaven? Are you claiming to be from the presence of God? Are you, pres- are you claiming to have entered into the world, not into history, not to have come out of history? What, where are you from? He didn't say a word. Pilate looks at him and says, do you not know, do you not understand that I have the power to release you and I have the power to crucify you? Your life is in my hands. And Jesus' response was, no, it's not. You think it is. Those scribes and Pharisees and Sanhedrin, they think my life hangs in the balance in your hands and their hands. You guys think you're in control of all of this, but I want you to understand, this would not be happening were it not in the planned purpose of God. So when Peter stands on the day of Pentecost and looks out over them and says, this man whom you crucified, this man whom you put to death, you put to death by the preordained plan of God that salvation might be accomplished. That's exactly what Jesus is saying in this passage. God has planned this. God has purposed this. It is a part of something that's far bigger than you and far greater than you. And you can't stop it. And you can't change it. It all belongs to the purpose and the power of Almighty God. So when Pilate finished his efforts to release him, the Jews kept saying, crucify him, crucify him. Accused him of treason. If he let him go... He turned him over, they took him out, they they mocked him, put his cross upon his back, and took him to Golgotha, 
to Calvary. They took him there thinking that what this verse says is wrong. Thinking that there is no power in hell or any man who can stand before the power and the presence of the great I Am. Here was the great I Am, and they were leading him out, and they were, they were thinking, man, anybody can do it. We can do it. him knowing that he was going voluntarily and going by the plan and the purpose of a sovereign God. He hangs on the cross. He's crucified there between two terrorists. And they hang there. We know from other accounts that they, one of the terrorists mocked him. One of the terrorists said, what are you saying? This man has done nothing wrong. We're hanging here because we deserve it. And, and he's hanging here for no reason at all. How can you mock this man? The, the terrorist mocking said, if you're really who you say you are, take yourself down to the cross and take us with you, man. Save us too. And the other terrorist said, He's not, what are, you, are you out of your mind? He looked at Jesus and said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I don't know if he understood the full gravity of what he was talking about or not. But I know this, Jesus looked at him. That was enough faith that Jesus looked at him and said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Trusting, believing, faith that Jesus really was and really is who he said he was. As he hangs there in those last moments, he looks down and sees three women and, and John. And, and he, he sees Mary, his mother, and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Cleopas, and, and Mary Magdalene. Mary's all around. Not one of them greater than the other. All three of them, those in need of what was taking place on that cross. You know, the, the concept that we ought to somehow see Mary, the mother of Jesus, as a co-redemptrix, as, as one who is, is saving alongside of Jesus, one who's be, to be exalted and prayed to, and all, is, is totally unbiblical. Mary was a sinner in need of salvation. She was a chosen vessel of God to bring Christ into the world. But she was just like all of us in need of what Christ was doing on that cross. He didn't say, woman, it's all yours now. Mother, I'm leaving it to you. He said, mother, woman, behold your son, John, my brother, my disciple, Behold him, and, and, and behold your mother. Kind of passed, him off, passed her off under the care of the disciple whom he loved. After he had done that, I love the way John says in verse 28, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the Scripture, all the way back from his birth to his ministry and his miracles and his signs, and now he's hanging on the cross, knowing that all things had been accomplished to fulfill the Scriptures. He said, I'm thirsty. And after they'd given him the sour wine on the, on the sponge, on a branch of hyssop, it says he received the sour wine and he said, It is finished. And thus the title of the sermon and then he died. It is finished. 
It is finished. It is accomplished. It is done with. Christ's death is a death in many ways like hundreds and thousands of other deaths that had taken place on Roman crosses. It was painful. It was physically horrible. And, and, and he endured it unbelievably, but others had done that. But there was something unique about the death. There was something about this death that cannot be matched in the fullest sense by any other because in that death he achieved our salvation by his suffering. Not just his physical suffering, but the spiritual suffering of taking on our sin upon himself. You know, you, you, you can read this passage and if you're not careful, you can, you can fail to see the real significance of it because he dies. Everybody we know dies. Some die more horribly than others. Some die very peacefully and naturally in their sleep. But, but, but everybody dies. He dies here. It takes the Holy Spirit's inspiration of the fullness of Scripture for us to understand fully what he meant when he said it is finished. It was, it was not a cry of defeat. It was not saying, oh, well, it's over. I didn't get done what I wanted to do. It wasn't that at all. It wasn't even a cry of somehow submission to fate. Well, I did my best, but it looks like this is where it all ends. It's finished. When he said it is finished, as John says, knowing that all things have been accomplished to fulfill the Scriptures, knowing that all things to bring about what was needed for our salvation was done, then he said it is finished, and he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit, and then he died. The Apostle Paul speaks of it in many ways. In Galatians 4, 4 and 5, he says, But when the fullness of time came, that's that time on the cross. When the fullness of time came, after God had sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. When he said it is finished, it was saying, the door is now open, the way is now open to be adopted into God's families as sons. Or in Romans 3, 21 through 26, when the Apostle Paul says, Now apart from the law, which is what all the Jewish leaders were wanting to, be, wanting to hold on to tenaciously, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Being witnessed by the law and by the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. First, there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. That was to demonstrate His righteousness, because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Paul in Galatians 4 and Romans 3 is talking about what Jesus meant when he said those words, it is finished. He's talking about what was accomplished there, what was fulfilled there. And there are really four things that I think Scripture points to in that little phrase, it is finished. First of all, it points to the fact that Christ's death was sacrifice. 
It, it was a sacrifice. When we consider the nature of the atonement of Christ, we immediately find ourselves in the midst of the biblical world of ideas and imagery without which its nature cannot really be understood. We have to go back to the Old Covenant, back to the Old Testament. We have to go back to the sacrificial lamb that was offered on the Day of Atonement. We have to go back and see that there was sacrifice and accompanying thought of substitution all through the Old Covenant. But that every lamb that was slain and every offering that was made, every sacrifice that was made as a symbol of a substitute that was yet to come. And when John the Baptist, at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, pointed and said, as he came up out of the baptismal water, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When he said, Behold the Lamb of God, he was talking about this man is going to be a sacrifice and a substitute. That day is coming in which Jesus speaks by saying, It is finished. There's the idea of sacrifice. There's the idea of substitution. Sacrifice has to do with an innocent victim. The death of an innocent victim. Usually an animal in the Old Covenant. Substitution means that this death was in place of the death of someone else. And that death he hung there was the death that you deserved and that I deserved. It was our death that we should have died. Romans 3, 10 through 12, Paul says... As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good, not even one. Quoting Psalm, uh, Psalm 14. Paul says, understand this. The, the substitute on the cross was sinless because the ones being substituted for are not. Hebrews 10.4, which says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Lambs can symbolize it. Goats can symbolize it. Bulls can symbolize it. But they cannot effectually take away sin. This sacrifice did. The it is finished is a picture of sacrifice. Secondly, it's the, it's the Christ's death was the stealing of, of God's wrath. We don't like to talk about wrath today. God's wrath. We like to talk about God as a loving, peaceful, gentle, kind, merciful God who just would never harm a flea, right? I mean, that's how we like to think about it. I had someone tell me not long ago, you know, not, not in our church, but somebody in our community, well, I just think of God as just only love. And that love just encompasses everybody no matter what they believe. Well, that's, a, that's, a, that's certainly a great sentimental hope, but it's certainly not what the Scripture says. The Scripture says, in, in, particular, in, in Romans 1, Paul says, listen, the wrath of God is being poured, aga- poured out against all unrighteousness and all ungodliness, period. All sin, the wrath of God is being poured out against. And that wrath has to be dealt with. So the second word in understanding the death of Christ is that word propitiation. Propitiation is the appeasing of or the turning away the wrath of God. Romans 3.25, Paul says, Whom God displayed publicly, that is Jesus, as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. 
Paul says, listen, understand this. When Jesus said, it is finished, he was not only talking about his plan of salvation, his work of salvation, his work of sacrifice being finished, but he's also talking about propitiation being accomplished. That for all who believe, all who have faith through the blood of Christ, that the wrath of God is now turned away. Wrath is still very much real. But for those who believed, it's turned away. You know, if sacrifice... And substitution is a term that kind of refers to Christ's death toward us. Propitiation is a word that kind of refers to Christ's death toward God. Dealing with what had to be dealt with because God could not, could not tolerate sin. So the background for this term is the wrath of God, which is directed toward all sin. And propitiation refers to the work of the Lord Jesus, which he the justified wrath of God against the sinner, the righteous wrath of God against the sinner is stilled or turned aside, and the love of God is enabled to save him. It's an amazing truth that took place when he said it is finished. So there's sacrifice and substitution, and there's propitiation, the stilling of God's wrath. And then we need to recognize that Christ's words, it is finished. Christ giving up the ghost, lowering his head and giving up his spirit. Christ's death brought reconciliation. Substitution, propitiation toward God, and, and reconciliation. That's the third word I want you to remember out of this understanding of the, com, uh, of the statement, it is finished. Because it describes Christ's death as being a of reconciliation. Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 18 19 said, Now all these things are from God. Talking about the gift of salvation. All these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed us to the word of reconciliation. Not only did Christ bring about reconciliation through his death on the cross, but he gives us, who are his disciples, who are his children, who are part of his body, a ministry of reconciliation. That's what evangelism is, folks. That's what missions is. It's going out and calling people to be reconciled with God. The word reconciliation literally means to make one or to restore a broken relationship. And, and mankind's relationship with God was broken by sin. Broken in the garden by the fall. And in this death, in this statement, it is finished. There is now reconciliation. Those who have faith in Christ are reconciled to God, made one with God. We are in Him. He is in us. That, that union concept that we've talked about in John's Gospel, in looking at the branches, the vine and the branches, we are now in union with God because of the reconciliation power of Christ on the cross and saying it is finished. That relationship is restored. That relationship that was so wrong is made right because of this death. There's a fourth word that helps us understand that statement. It is finished, understand this death that is taking place, and that is the word redemption. We've been bought with a price. The word redemption is, is really derived from two words which mean again and to buy. 
to buy again or to buy back or to redeem something. We, we know about redemption. If you pawn something uh, to get some money for it and then you save up your money and you go back and you redeem it out of being pawned. You, you, you get it back. You, you basically buy it back. You redeem it. I remember when I was a child, my mother saved S&H green stamps. 90% of the people in here have no idea what I'm talking about. But you go to Kroger today and you get points for gas, you know, well, and you redeem those. Back then, you went to the store, you spent $100, you got, I don't know, a bunch of green stamps, and you licked them and st- stuck them in books. And when you got enough books, you could go to the SNH Green Stamp Redemption Center, and because you've spent money and given money, you can redeem certain things on the basis of that. We got a toaster one time. Only toaster we ever had when I was growing up was from S&H Green Stamps, Redemption Center. I wanted a bicycle. That took too many stamps. <laughs> His death on the cross was an act of redemption. It was an act of buying back that which was lost. Redeeming it. It's a, a glorious term. Buying again, buying back our souls that have been lost. Our bondage in that lostness is to sin. And and sin's penalty and power is over us. And and Christ's death frees us who believe from both the power and the presence and the penalty of sin. I like the way John Murray says it in his commentary on Romans. He says, Just as sacrifice is directed to the need created by our guilt... Propitiation to the need that arises from the wrath of God toward all sin and reconciliation to the need arising from our alienation from God because of sin. So redemption is directed as per, uh, excuse, redemption is directed to the bondage to which our sin has consigned us. Our sin has made us slaves to it, slaves to sin. It goes on to say this bondage is, of course, multiform. Consequently, redemption as purchase or ransom receives a wide variety of reference and application. Redemption applies to every aspect in which we are bound, and it releases us into a liberty that is nothing less than the liberty of the glory of the children of God. Amen. It sets us free. Free from the bondage that we find ourselves. Paul said that in Romans 3 and 24 when he said, Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Redemption which is in Christ Jesus sets us free. Or Peter in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 when he says, knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. So when Jesus cried on that cross, it is finished. His declaration from the cross is is particularly appropriate for your understanding 
his death as redemption? Because one of the meanings that that word redemption means, tetelestai in, in, in Greek, one of the meanings is paid in full. So when he hangs there and he says, it is finished, he's saying the price has been paid for your redemption in full. You can't add anything to it. You dare not take anything away from it. You can't add your good works. You can't add your religiosity. You can't, uh, you can't, uh, you can't add your ritual. You can't, you can't add. When he hung there, he said, it is paid in full to all who believe. To all who trust in the one who is hanging on that cross. The word was used in business transactions in the secular world every day when someone would pay off a debt, they'd stamp it, paid in full. Telestatai, paid in full. When we think of those words, it is finished. We must think of that grand scheme of God's purpose of salvation to redeem a people for himself out of a lost and dying world that had tried every kind of religion every kind of formula to save themselves but recognizing that it could not be apart from the gift of Christ on the cross Prior to that cross, he had celebrated that supper with them and said, it's coming. This bread is my body, this wine is my blood of the new covenant given for you. And those disciples, when they saw him hanging there, his body on the cross, his blood streaming out, they must have recognized, at least shortly thereafter, what he was talking about in that upper room. You know, the, the reality of all that Christ accomplished on the cross is just breathtaking. I, I don't see how anybody can read chapter 19, verses 1 through 30, and not be moved by it. Especially a believer. Moved almost to tears by it. I mean, the fact that, that, that hell and men and everything with all power of civil authority tried to stand against him, but they could not do it. When he said it is finished, the Roman soldiers probably thought, yeah, and the Roman authorities, yeah. Pilate said, well, at least I don't have to deal with that anymore. It's finished. The powers of hell, Satan and his legions of demons must have said, yeah, it's finished. We've defeated the Son of God. He's dead and gone. But when he said it is finished, they didn't have a clue. But we have a clue. We have God's word that says those three little simple words, it is finished carry a gigantuan idea of full payment, full salvation 
to all who believe. And we remember that every time we come to this table. We come to this table as a body. We come to this table as a church. We come to this table as, as disciples of His. Those who have professed our faith in Christ and said we're following Him forever. We come to this table to remember and to examine and to think. We do it together. As a matter of fact, I'm going to do something we haven't been doing. I'm going to ask those, I know we have some who sit in the, in the foyer and, and watch out there on the TV and, and, and everything. I'm going to ask in a moment, as the deacons come in a minute to prepare to serve this, I'm going to ask if they would move into the sanctuary. We're only going to serve in here. Because it's really a body experience together. And, and, and I don't want to do everywhere all over. I want us to do it together in here. So if you're in the foyer... As we pray in a moment, just there's plenty of seats along the back. Just quietly come in and prepare to take the service. We're only going to serve in here because we're going to do this together as a body. We're going to remember his death together in this room. If you're here this morning and you're a believer, I invite you to, to share in this meal. This is the Lord's Supper. It's his. I invite you to share in that with us. If you're here this morning, you're not a believer, I ask you not to take the meal, but to think about what the elements mean. The body of Christ that was, shed on, that was hung on the cross, the blood of Christ that was shed as the blood of the new covenant for forgiveness, for redemption, for all that goes along with complete and full salvation. Would you pray with me as, as the deacons come and we prepare to take this meal together? And would you ease into the sanctuary from the foyer? And as we pray... We're asking God's blessing on this, these elements. But we're also to use this time, Paul said, to examine ourselves. To see if there be any sin that needs to be confessed. To say, like David did in Psalm 139, Search me, O Lord, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And if there be any sin within me, Lord, point it out and cleanse me of it. come to this table with a renewal of our relationship with Christ and a renewal of our commitment to his gospel. Father, we thank you as we come to this table for the sacrifice that it represents. We're told to do it often and do it in remembrance of you. And Lord, we do it this morning remembering what we just talked about, your death, your your statement, it is finished. And it is finished for our good and for your glory. Help us, Lord, take it with prayerful hearts.
As we prepare, you continue to pray. And as the elements are passed, please hold them and we will all eat together. pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe these are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come and he put all things in subjection under his feet and he gave him that is Christ as head over all things in the church which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, who were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our transgressions made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. For as a result of, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Scripture says, in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he passed it among them and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Take and eat it and do this in remembrance of me. Scripture says he also took the cup, a cup of wine, fruit of the vine. And he said, this cup 
is my blood. Representing my blood, which is about to be poured out as the, as the seal of the new covenant, whereby you can know God and you can have your sins forgiven. It's going to happen in just a few hours. It's going to happen when I say it is finished. He said, take it, drink it, and do this in remembrance of me. says that after they did that, they sang a hymn and they went out. And we're going to sing together as our instrumentalists come and prepare for that. I remind you also that we celebrate or we take up a caris offering, a grace offering that goes just to help the needs of our church family in addition to the budget and everything. And there'll be ushers with things to receive that in the back as you go out today. We call it a pocket change money a pocket change offering. So whatever you can give, uh, please do to just go toward that special need within our church family. What a glorious thought. It is finished. Stand together and sing together. God leads in your life. Perhaps it's to confess Him as Lord for men and be obedient in baptism or unite with this church family. Whatever God is dealing with in your life, be obedient and come as we sing. And if God is so moving, let's sing together.